You're listening to Book Stories, a podcast about bookstores, books, and book culture. I'm your host, Vic Singh. This is the first of a new series of interviews we're doing at Book Stories, conversations with authors about their books. We've still got loads of conversations to go with bookstores across the world, but this is a fun pivot for me as I get to talk to authors who've written books on subjects that I love. And I love few things more than basketball. This is a conversation I had with Rafe Bartholomew, author of Basketball, A Love Story, a project that many people know by the ESPN film of the same name. Rafe and I get into it all, working with Bill Simmons, the NBA's trajectory, the ABA and its legacy on the game today, Wilt or Russell, Becky Hammond's rise as a coach in the NBA, gambling, Michael Jordan and the athlete industrial complex, Allen Iverson, the Warriors, the greatest player who never won a ring, the international game, the legend of Arvidas Sabonis, and much more. We had a fun chat to say the least, and it was great talking hoops with Rafe. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Thanks for listening. Happy Thanksgiving and enjoy the pod. Hi, I'm Rafe Bartholomew, author of Basketball, A Love Story. Rafe, thanks for being here. Thank you. This book is amazing, first of all. Congratulations. Thanks. Um, How did you become a part of the project? So it started, it goes all the way back to Grantland, which was my job from 2011 to late 2015. The, Were you there till the end? Yeah, I was there to the bitter end. I was I basically went down with the ship. Uh, I, ha, I brought home uh, the remaining Grantland quarterlies in the office. I am the keeper of a lot of the old garbage. So if anyone needs it, wants to buy it, look me up. eBay? <laughs> I, I, I may have made a little bit of money off of some old <laughs> quarterlies on eBay. But anyway, because of Grantland, which was run by Bill Simmons, who now runs The Ringer. Dan Clores, who was already the director of the ESPN film Basketball Love Story, was had been working on the film, doing these interviews for a couple of years already. And early 2016, he had this idea that, hey, I have more than 500 hours of interviews with almost 200 players, coaches, media commissioners, this this legendary group of people involved with the NBA and basketball in general, maybe I should also have a book. So he reached out to Simmons and asked asked Bill to recommend someone. And Bill said, well, you know, he used to work for me. This guy, Rafe, is a pretty good editor. So um, that's how it started. And, uh, and then uh, I was very lucky enough that Jackie McMullen agreed to work with me on it. And it just became a dream project in almost every way. So cool. So did you know Jackie beforehand? Of course, I've, You've I've admired her work. Jackie since forever, yeah. but no, we'd never really met. And uh, and one of the other great things about working on this project was that we got to work so closely together, we're friends, we get, got to great have this great new relationship. So your boss, Bill Simmons, made the intro for you. I've heard a lot of stories about that, that he's, he does that kind of thing. It's not really spoken about in his media world, that he, he kind of does these things behind the scenes. Can you speak to that a little bit? Is that, just, is that just who Bill is? Is that building up these amazing, talented people, finding them in nooks and crannies, and then, you know, kind of like propelling their careers? Well, it's interesting. I mean, I, I ended up at Grantland not necessarily because of Bill. I was one of the few people to get hired there without ever being interviewed by him. I think they were desperate early on for some bodies, and I right. actually knew uh, Jay Caspian Kang, who was one of the early editors on the website, and he brought me in. 
Uh, but of course, after working there for a long time, did enough to, to develop some some trust uh, with, with with everyone else there. And yeah, I, I think that Bill, I think it serves him well to have his people do well, whether it's for him or out there in the world in some other capacity. And It's good for his brand. Right, exactly. Yeah, for sure. So this book is chock full of just stuff. I'm just going to kind of, I, if we could talk about it, it would probably take about three weeks to do a podcast, but I picked in, uh, I picked my spots, and if you'll just indulge me, I got a bunch of stuff that I want to kind of go through with you. First, let's start about when, when did you fall in love with the game? That's one of the early questions. When did the game come to you? Right, and actually, actually, every interview, all of these like 200 interviews began with that question, whether it was Dan Clores, one of our co-authors doing the interviews, he did about two-thirds of them, or this other group of NBA journalists, uh, Jackie, uh, Bob Ryan, Henry Abbott, Howard Beck, also conducted interviews for the book. But no matter who did it, every interview started with, tell us your name, and how did you fall in love with the game of basketball? Who did you pretend to be as a kid? And so it's amazing to read those stories coming from the mouths of Bernard King and Calvin Murphy and LeBron James and Kevin Durant, all these players and and greats, all-timers. And it, it really connected with me because... It sound they they say the same things that I think of when I I started playing basketball. I played growing up. My father had played basketball in high school and college in Ohio. Moved to New York, and when I was a kid, uh, I'm born in 1982, so I, I came of age in the late 80s, early 90s. Started playing at the local recreation center when my father would bring me over there. He was a bartender, so he could bring me over after school and still work at night. And shooting, playing, pickup. And, and then when I got added to the local sort of travel team, I was uh, we're in L.A. right now. Uh, one of my teammates was Smush Parker, who isn't the most popular guy in L.A., but he... Definitely well-known forever. Exactly. An, an unforgettable name. Yeah. I, I almost think he, some of the... He gets maligned because he gets a, his name just associates with and it's easier to remember him than Slava Medvedenko with that era of Lakers. But anyway, playing with Smush, playing with this really good, gifted group of kids when I was 10, 11, 12 years old, it made me feel like, man, I'm good at something. I'm part of something. And and, it, and I can remember playing in those tournaments. And we were, you know, we were from downtown, which is not a basketball hotbed in New York. This, we were in Manhattan uh, and traveling up to the Bronx, playing at the Gaucho's gym, going to Brooklyn, playing teams, beating Brooklyn USA sometimes, sometimes beating Riverside Church. We're up there with some of the, the best talent in the in the city at our age, this is, of course, this is when we're like 12, 13, 14, when it doesn't right. really matter yet, but right. hey, it mattered to us at the time. And feeling that we were that good, it, it, man, it, it made me want to play all the time, and I've never stopped ever since. Um, there was a part in the book where Jerry West mentions that his team with Wilt, Elgin, uh, basically three superstars, he said in the in the book that it didn't work. What do you think that you need around three superstars to make it work today? What is What do you think it was true then that's true today? It still comes down to chemistry and getting guys to figure it out, especially with three. I mean, if you talk about Wilt Chamberlain, Jerry West, and Elgin Baylor, they are three of the very biggest superstars. And and we break teams down into sort of the alphas now a lot of the times. Is he, is this Does this player... Does he dominate the ball? Does he dominate a game? Can he take over a game? Well, all three of those guys could. But Will arrived in L.A. late in Elgin's career, really only played one full season with Elgin, and then Elgin retired halfway through the next one, which is the one when they finally won a championship for with that group, and, and Jerry West finally got over the hump. 
I think it's chemistry. It's having guys to play the roles around whoever your your two stars or your three stars. And it's also figuring out it takes time for players who are that good and that capable of dominating a game by themselves to figure out how to make it work when they're all on the floor together. Because one of the few things a player like Jerry West back in the day or when it was LeBron James and Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh trying to figure out in Miami, one of the few things they've never done on a basketball court is defer because they never had to. They have to learn it. Right. It's so interesting bringing it to the present with what's going on with Carmelo now. You just pull these names out of the air. They look really good on paper. And then you find out 10, 6, 16, 15 games in that it's just not working. It was true then and it's true today. Yeah. If it if the mix isn't right and you can wait. So I think patience gets lost in these because when you put together a big three like that, there's so much more expectation, and they, and you there you see the talent on the floor and think they should be winning every game all the time. Yeah. So they don't really get that learning curve that a, a team that isn't as star spangled on paper uh, would necessarily get. So I think that that forces some of those big three lineups to break up a little soon, maybe before they've totally. Uh, they're fully baked and and might reach their full potential just because those growing pains hurt even more when when the expectations are so high. Yeah, for sure. Well said. The the league is often and aptly referred to as a product. In the book, it's written that there was indifference to the game early on because the product wasn't fantastic. When do you think the NBA product became fantastic? I think, and, and a lot of the players and coaches interviewed in the book make this case, and actually so does the the writer and sociologist Nelson George, that it was the late 70s. It was basically when the ABA and NBA, we call it a merger even though it was officially an absorption of, of four remaining ABA teams into the NBA. So that was the New Jersey Nets, uh, the San Antonio Spurs, the Indiana Pacers, and the Denver Nuggets. And the ABA, because it was open to pretty much doing anything it possibly could to compete with the NBA, with with the more established product, they would let in the players who the NBA wasn't letting in, whether it was because they had gotten smeared in unfair gambling controversies like Connie Hawkins and Roger Brown or Doug Moe, uh, whether it was because the NBA, even into the 70s, still had a soft racial quota where they wouldn't, they didn't like to have more than three black players per team uh, on the court at, at any given time. And so the NBA game, until it absorbed the, the the ABA, until that happened in the late 70s, it was a little slower. It, it was more sort of they played inside out all the time. It, they, they, it wasn't as high flying. There was no three-point shot yet. And bringing in the ABA, bringing in the players like you know, Julius Irving, George Gervin, uh, Michael Thompson, Maurice Lucas, all this influx of really fantastic talent that came with the a- 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 ABA pushed the NBA with the already great players who were there to to another level. And then right on the right on the heels of that, in 1980, you get Magic Johnson and, and Larry Bird entering the league. And that, with the talent that had come into the league in recent years and these two young superstars to sort of be the faces of the new league, I think that's when it becomes fantastic. What is the ABA's legacy today? A lot. I think the ABA's legacy to most fans, and I don't think there's anything wrong with this, is just how crazy and wild and funny it was. It's you, you watch the 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 Will Ferrell movie. What was it semi? 
Was it semi-pro? I'll check, I'll check on anyway, that, yeah. You, the, the Will Ferrell movie, that was a takeoff on the ABA. Right. And some of that, that stuff almost pales in comparison, the, the stuff in the comedy film almost pales in comparison to the real ABA. And the stories about the the red and white, the red, white, and blue ball came into came to be because George Mikan, the all-time great center, was the ABA's first commissioner. And you remember, he always, he always wore glasses because he had bad eyes. Well, he actually admitted that he couldn't, when he watched, basketball on TV, he didn't see the, the ball very well, a regular. So he said, let's make it red, white, and blue. It'll be easier to follow, and then maybe we'll also be able to sell, sell a, a bunch patent. of them. And of course, they forgot to, to get the right kind of patent and didn't weren't able to make money off of it the way they're supposed to. The ABA was known for fighting these crazy characters. The the crowds were were sometimes non-existent. Uh, the story of Earl the Pearl Monroe thinking about jumping to the ABA from the NBA and he visits the Indiana Pacers who were like the marquee team of the ABA during those years. And three of their three of their players in the locker room have their like revolvers just in their in their lockers. And Earl Earl comes out. He says, "I don't want any parts of these guys. They're crazy." And and Indiana was the the stable franchise in the ABA. So it's it, it's really known for the they great were the stories. Dynasty. Yeah, Indiana yeah. was the dynasty, yeah. right? Uh, yeah, they went to five finals out of yeah. eight ABA years and won three of them. So that's about as good as it could get. But the ABA, though, on on like a on from like a stylistic uh, point of view, though they it's responsible for the three point line, correct? Which many of us, most people, the casual fans, don't know that. And then also the slam dunk contest was essentially popularized by the ABA as well. Why did it originally start? Why was there this faction of I guess team owners that that wanted to create a new league? How did that? Where, where did that come from? Well, I think I mean they they were I f- I forget the name of the rival league to the NFL that had done this about a decade before the ABA came to be, but they had the, the these businessmen who started the ABA realized that a rival league could come up real fast and and maybe get absorbed into the NBA. So they, these were people who wanted to join the NBA uh, as owners, but they couldn't afford. They didn't have the money to get in. So the the cost of starting up an ABA franchise was tiny compared to getting into the NBA. And plus, they weren't in a hurry to expand in the NBA at that point in time. It was really pressure from the ABA that that brought in teams like when, you know, a team in the in Buffalo and, and the San Diego Clippers and Portland Trailblazers. And that that was really what they were trying to get into markets before the ABA got there. Uh, and And that spirit of... Uh, just tr- throwing everything at the wall, innovation, that is behind why they adopted the three-point shot, why they played faster, why they hired these younger coaches like Hubie Brown, Larry Brown, Doug Moe, who were not as, and, and they weren't always playing on, on. they were often not playing on TV at all, so they could be a little bit more um, creative with the way they played the game so they could play a more wide open game no one was going to be watching and judging them for for running or for letting uh say the kentucky colonel's great shooter louis dampier pull up on on the on the fast break and shoot a shoot a three-pointer instead of going to the trying to go to the basket all these things all these hidebound rules of basketball that are still taught in a lot of cases even to today although it's obviously changing at the highest levels 
all of those old rules, you could you could get a little bit further away from them in the ABA. And so, yeah, it was the, the hotbed of innovation, the hotbed of talent with guys like Spencer Haywood, Moses Malone, letting in the first high school to pro players, the first one and done players. That started because of the ABA too. So all of these things that we think of as modern NBA basketball, you can draw a line to the ABA and say that this really started that ball rolling, whether it's the three-point shot, the more open style of play, the athleticism. It's all, a lot of that goes back to the ABA. Is the Rick, was the Rick Barry deal what made the NBA finally say, okay, we got to get, we got to, we got to put a lid on this? Was well, that the, the, what broke the dam? Yeah, that was actually pretty early in the in, in the okay. ABA in in okay. sort of the the lifespan of this. It was, I think, the the really they were going to get Rick Barry for the second year of the ABA, uh, and he had to sit out one year because of court battles, and uh, and ended up playing the third year and a couple more years before going back to the to the NBA. But yeah, the ABA was trying to poach at NBA players, offering them these bloated contracts that were often had very arcane language with deferred payments. So it's it sounds like the biggest contract in history, but more than half of the money is due to the player. In 50 years down the line when there won't be a franchise left anymore. So they were, they were basically trying to scam everyone on all sides, right. anything to, to put pressure on the NBA because the idea was by creating this rival league and if they got enough attention, then they could force a merger because the NBA wouldn't want real competition. That was the plan. It just took much longer to execute than they yeah. expected. So... Early on in the ABA's lifespan, 1968, uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is leaving UCLA. He's turning pro. And there was going to be a bidding war over him between the NBA and the ABA. And they say that if the ABA had played this right and gotten—they had a real chance at Kareem— and had they gotten him, then the NBA probably would have crumb would would have broken real fast and said, "Okay, you guys are in. Let's 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 make this work." But what happened was, George Mikan, the commissioner, was supposed to present Kareem with a million dollar check up front and basically say, "Look, you can have as much money as we can marshal up to give you. You can play anywhere you want. Don't worry about the draft. You want to play in L.A., go play in L.A. You want to play in New York, we'll put you out there." He didn't bring the check. Some people say. Mike and just forgot it and blanked out, just had brain farted it away. Some people think that Mike and decided, oh, well, this will just be a, a icebreaker and then I'll give him the check on the next one. But they knew the ABA had asked around and they knew beforehand that Kareem didn't want that. He didn't want to be sort of messed around with. He just wanted something straight up. Let me know what the offer is and then I'll make my decision because he was drafted by the Milwaukee Bucks and they figured this guy from New York played college in, a, in L.A., probably doesn't want to begin his professional career in Milwaukee. We have a chance here. And Mike and kind of flubbed it and that led to six more years of ABA basketball. Wow, crazy. Um, the book, So I, I didn't know a lot about the history of the ABA and thank you for articulating all that, but the book really does it justice and kind of makes it feel um, like not only was it an important part of the, the NBA and the league's history, but also a lot of what we see today is a result of the ABA you know, good, bad, or indifferent. A lot of a lot of the players too, which I'll get to as we progress. Um, just real quick, and, and you know, this is kind of tongue-in-cheek, but Wilt or Russell, and why? I think overall it's fair to say Russell, but working on this book, getting to read up close the, the, the transcripts of so many people who had played and shared the court with Wilt, I got I do believe that he's on he's the underestimated one in that either or. I think that because 
Wilt died, what, maybe 20 years ago now and is not around to sort of buff his own legend. Of course, Bill Russell is pretty reticent and, and is not a, a a gloater in any way. But there are so many people still carrying the torch for his greatness, whereas, and they're loud voices there, and it has a lot to do with sports media. I mean, the biggest basketball voices are Bob Ryan, Bill Simmons, people who are all from Boston or their entire careers are associated with Boston. And that's not to say they're wrong, but they're going to see the Russell side of that question. And and to read the interviews of players from Philly, like the, there's a Philadelphia basketball legend named Sonny Hill who's in the book who played in one of the secondary leagues during he's he, he's older and and was sort of a victim of the nba quotas so he didn't play in the nba but he played in the eastern league and other leagues and 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 went on to found the the baker league in philadelphia which is their version of like the rucker league or the venice or the drew league here in la uh and sunny hill will, will say straight up no there was no player ever like Wilt. Forget about this. It's all hype. There are players like Joe Rucklick, who was one of his teammates in Philadelphia, and saying, look, if you put Wilt on that team in Boston with that talent around him with with five other Hall of Famers, they never would have lost a game. So there are, it's, I think it's valuable to get that other side in here, to get For the sure. people who are, who really are committed to reminding us how good and dominant and truly otherworldly an athlete like Wilt Chamberlain was in his time. When it comes down to it, and and in this statistical era, we do our best to be more nuanced about how we understand the game. It's You want to resist always falling back to the rings argument, like look at all the championships that Russell won, but that is... I think it's almost sure that no player will have a run like that. Just because, and that, a lot of that has to do with the way the league has changed. It's much bigger, much harder to keep teams like that together. But still, Russell did it. There were a lot of great players in the league. Oscar Robertson was in the league. Wilt was in the league. Jerry West. And they were all dealing with the similar issues of the time. Right. So it wasn't like one was kind of at a disadvantage compared to another relative to that era. And Russell and the Celtics always found a way to beat all of them. Well said. A good portion of the book is devoted to the women's game and the evolution of the women's game. Can you? I'm a Spurs guy. I'm a pop guy. So can you indulge me and talk a little bit about Becky Hammond and the Spurs bringing her on as a coach? And then ultimately, any thoughts on why more teams haven't followed suit? I believe the way that Becky Hammond and R.C. Buford and people involved with the Spurs describe that decision in this book in, in that she was a play she was playing for the the WNBA team right. in San Antonio and got injured and it basically gave her a reason to stick around San Antonio during the NBA season rather than go play overseas and because she was there and they got a chance to sort of get to know her better and see you know what a great basketball mind she had and what a great leader she could be and and the way she interacted with players they thought well there's no reason not to bring someone this talented as a potential coach onto our staff. And inside that insular San Antonio Spurs culture, of course, they're going to be aware of the trailblazing aspect of it. But I think of any team in the league, they are the least likely to just pull a publicity stunt. They just, they yeah. don't care about it at all. They want, in fact, they don't want any of the publicity. I think that's what makes it, that, that's what makes Becky Hammond's story greater. Because I, 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 for all of the talk around her, and when, like, it, it's a story even when she gets an interview for a, for a head coaching job or anything, Becky Hammond is a story. You know that 
coming from that San Antonio culture, she doesn't want that either. That's not any, all of that attention is, is sort of the worst part of this experience for them. Yeah. Because it's all about the, the, it's all about basketball. It's all about the sport and the team that they are trying to build there. It's sort of an interesting thing to watch from outside because I can just imagine every time that it becomes a big media thing, everyone inside the Spurs family just sort of face palming and and saying, oh, this is terrible. Like, this is not what it's about at all. This is just, to them, they they know there's bigger stuff going on. They know how big it is. They know the context. But they strive to keep it also, on some level, all about basketball. There are other female assistant coaches in the league. Nancy Lieberman-Klein has been in and out of the league in, in a lot of different ways since then. And I think it's going to happen more and more. A lot of it is uh, the way that that people get hired to to become NBA assistant coaches. And a lot of that is you either were an ex-player who's interested in coaching and wants to work his way up into the, you know, the front of the bench and maybe a head coaching job, or you're one of the Eric Spolstra, David Fisdale— You're groomed. Groomed, but also grinder types, right? right? These guys who start in a video room when they're straight out of college— and spend 15 years learning everything about the league by being advanced scouts and international scouts and player development coaches and video guys. And if you're a great female player like Becky Hammond is, you spend your career playing. You're not, you don't have time to go be a, a video grinder for an NBA team. You're too busy living out your own career so that, that there's less of an uh, of an obvious entry path into the into an NBA franchise from there. I think that... You know, the, the work of, of Hammond and other women who are starting to get opportunities is going to start making teams pay attention to possible talent they may be overlooking because it's not coming to them through their normal channels. And so as as they succeed, probably the same, you know, it's a copycat league, they say all the time. As as these women succeed, other teams will start looking for other potential coaches from from women's basketball. Or at a very minimum, they'll be open to looking at a bigger pool of applicants as opposed to the same sort of tunnel that they've had. Gambling in the league in general was initially a big problem, but now it's largely embraced. Can you talk a little bit about when the sea change occurred? Well, early on in, the say, the, the 50s and 60s, gambling was so out in the open. They, the, the NBA knew in some cases, and this was before the college gambling scandals, uh, CCNY and LIU, and then later on the Jack Molinas fixes that unfairly dragged down the careers of Connie Hawkins and Roger Brown. There were times that the NBA saw fixing going on and, and figured out which players were involved and went up to them and said, at the end of this season, you're going to retire. Otherwise, it's just going to be all downhill for you. So they tried to sort of purge it from the professional game. It was much harder to keep out of the college game from there because it's the same problem essentially as it is now in that players, you you know, often don't come from families with a lot of money and going to college, there's a lot of money in that. There's If people are gambling, it doesn't take a whole lot to convince someone necessarily to, hey, just shave a few points, something like that. So that was what happened. I think the to, it was an enormous injustice what happened to Connie Hawkins, Roger Brown, Doug Moe, and these players who, because the, the New York 
district attorney's office trying to get big names in on a gambling controversy, even though these guys weren't involved, they were from New York and they had met the gamblers who were involved with it. And so simply on account of that, they were dragged in and basically sweated out unconstitutionally held for a week, a week or more at a time in hotels and not allowed. I mean, it's 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 something straight out of bad cop procedurals the way that, yeah, they, yeah. that that they were sweated and they played good pat good cop bad cop with them and and basically made it clear that if you don't say give us something we're never going to let you out of this hotel you're going to be here for months if you don't give us something and so they either lied or made up things and then that led to them being leaked through grand jury testimony and, and blacklisted for the first five, six years of their careers. And it's, it's really one of the most biggest stains on on the history of, of basketball. But it did seem to have a very strong deterrent effect, the idea that if you mess around, if you're even, even if you're totally innocent and there's no evidence against you, if a gambler breathed on you, it could be the end of your career. That mindset became a real thing after then and and it was not as big of a problem you know in the college game and and definitely not in the professional game now i think the embrace comes because we just assume that everyone's doing it anyway and there's so much and it's also really what it is is there's the people see dollar signs in it the the league is about making money for its owners as well as putting out this great product and and spreading the love of the game i mean they do a lot of the great soft sides of basketball and and making us love the sport but it's also a business like a lot of other things and and they see the revenue stream that they can get through gambling now and and want a piece of it and i think rightfully so in your opinion I I think they present it to be a much easier process and a much cleaner process than than they think it is. Because I spent the beginning of my sort of adult life and professional career living in the Philippines and and writing about basketball there. And that's a place where every professional game has pretty open gambling going on, every college game. I mean, college teams, when they make it to the semifinals and finals there, they get sequestered and they take all the players' phones away to try and prevent gamblers from reaching them. So that's something that, that is really a big part of the game. And when pro players miss big shots, when they when they make a mistake in a big moment, the first thing the entire crowd says is, oh, oh, Benta is selling the game. The NBA hasn't had to deal with that. People sort of just believe that the game is pure at the moment. And once you let gambling in the door like that, there's going to be enough people who will just assume, oh, something something fishy happened. Oh, LeBron is missing his foul shots late in games this year. Who got to him? What's What's happening out here? Nine times... 99 times out of 100, it's total BS, but it doesn't matter because that perception just becomes part of the culture of the game, and, and the game can still be great regardless of that, but that's an impurity that that hasn't been a big part of the American fans' basketball experience, and I don't know if the NBA really should be as open to to cracking the door open for that that to get in there. Yeah, it will always in, inevitably be bad actors. Yeah. Not being a part of it allows you to just kind of avoid bad actors, but like it is part of the game. It started with fantasy. Like I said, we, we spoke at the beginning. We from the same era. How how important was fantasy sports to your, you know, growing up? It's just it's that's yeah. what created the culture, right? Yeah, that yeah. we're into today, yeah. right? 
for I mean, I, I for me, I, I'm weird. I mean, I was really always about playing. Like I, okay. I one year I did one of those mail order fantasy things, and it was <laughs> so hard to figure out. I we sucked right out of the gate, and I never got into it after that. You're lucky, man. I actually, I'm actually one of the few that actually got out of it early too. Once I started to get serious with my girlfriend, now wife, I just you, there's no time. But you can you can literally go down the rabbit hole. But a lot of people I know still do it, and it's it makes the games watchable. It makes the enticement to bet goes higher because you know like a random brooklyn nets miami heat game becomes interesting yeah. uh, you know when it otherwise wouldn't <laughs> well, so another thing is people say that nba players it's impossible they make too much money to ever be tempted by 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 payoffs from a gambler by bribes and that's true but if there's so much money in this at some point in time that real criminal syndicates get involved they know that their job is to leverage people in all kinds of ways and if money doesn't do the job players have families players have uh, brothers and cousins and sisters and parents who might get into trouble and need and that could be a soft spot there's all kinds of ways to to let that become a part of the game. So I think it is dangerous. I hope it doesn't happen that way, but you know, human nature is not all it has some dark sides to it. Yeah. I'm curious if you have any thoughts on who's the most wooden-esque coach in the NBA today if you had to name one or two or three. And what I mean by that is he's described in the book as having, you know, his coaching style is obviously second to none, but he also was known for his poise. The the question is is who is the most wooden-esque in the game today? I don't know if it's a great answer. I, I'd lean towards Greg Popovich. He, temperamentally, it's not the same at all. Right. But the loyalty he inspires among his current and former players, the, the feeling of, of a long-term family bond that really continues after everyone has stopped playing and coaching together, the way that Bill Walton talks about showing up at John Wooden seminars randomly a decade after he graduated from UCLA and and being able to rattle off the rule, Wooden's rules of rebounding and how to put a sock on correctly for a crowd. It's, it's so easy to imagine Tim Duncan doing that in 10 years with, with something with a clinic Greg Popovich is running in his old age and his dotage. So I think that's the closest. There's, but the truth is there may really be no one that close. It's, it's so, the, the, the game, the culture is so different now. Yeah, but I'll take that answer. Thank you. What's the basketball and New York City origin story? The origin story for New York City basketball is, or the way I've always understood it, is that New York City, because it was a such a dense part of the country, probably still is, right? It's still one of the it's the one of the most populous places in America, and it's one of the most urbanized in that you know compared to other big cities, it's even there's more concrete, there's less space, it's more packed one on top of the other, and there are basketball courts everywhere. And so many of the early great basketball players come out of New York, whether it's the Bob Cousy's, the that area, Bob Cousy, Donnie Walsh, Chris Mullen is a lot older, uh, Lou Alcindor, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Len Elmore, Charlie Scott. It is. It had this rich, competitive basketball culture that existed before I think basketball blew up in the rest of the country. So if you look at the earlier years of the NBA, it can sometimes seem like half of the league comes from New York City. And as a New Yorker, looking at it now and seeing how NBA basketball is not 
dominated necessarily by New Yorkers anymore. It kind of makes you, it makes me sad. I mean, I, I, at Grantland, I once commissioned a story about just, just get to the bottom of this, find out what happened. And it's a million factors. A lot of it is, is to, to bring in some analytics is regression to the mean, you know, that now basketball is everywhere and there are good facilities everywhere and there are good players everywhere and there's good coaching everywhere, at least in the United States, pretty much. And players and also in many countries around the world. And so New York is producing about as many good professional basketball players as it should compared to its population and the rest of the the country and the world. It just, it had this outsized influence earlier on. Your former boss, Bill Simmons, uh, mentions in the book that on a a day-to-day, game-by-game basis, New York Knicks fans are the best in the the business. Uh, Is that a true statement? Man, I haven't been to a Knicks game since I was very young, since basically the 90s. But that is the, that's the... They turn out for drafts. Yeah, well, shoot, man, the draft (laughs) is hilarious. I I, I love, I I don't care if they're wrong. It's just great to boo every single pick. (laughs) And even when, even when it turns out to be a really, really good player like Kristaps Porzingis, the the organization deserves the boos because there's right. no reason to trust well, them. Well, one individual in the organization deserves the boos. Yeah, so. absolutely. But yeah. He, he's in charge of so much of what yeah. goes on. The owner, uh, and he, uh, yeah, the New York crowd. I don't know to what extent the new the New York Knicks crowd today at a game I, with the way that corporate boxes make up so much of the tickets. It's hard to imagine that the knowledgeable New York fan base that is so legendary is ne- is in the building every night. Maybe it is, but when, I, I tell you what, I, I used to, there were used to be student deals for the NIT semifinals every year in New York City, and I would go, and that was a basketball crowd, because it's all, it was all, it was everybody getting the same deals, finding the same discounts, and going in there because... Passion. Right, you just, and, and everybody was involved with the game somehow, you saw whole high school teams, I would go with like the guys I played with, and everyone was just sort of rolling around there with their team watching the game, and that did feel exactly like what, what Bill describes in that quote, where he's talking about this this New York crowd that just knows the game, that Marv Albert has a quote about New York crowds cheering for a good screen and things like that, which he says you don't see in other fan bases, which is probably true. So yeah, I do do still take a lot of pride in New York being a place where basketball is in the culture of almost everyone. You grow up in New York, you probably played pickup ball on a playground. It's very hard to avoid that. Yeah. Many pages are devoted to testimonies of Jordan as the greatest of all time. I couldn't find a caption from him. Did I miss that or were there none? No, uh, so we did not get Jordan for the book or the film. We were hopeful that we would. The way that I've heard Michael Jordan operates with stuff like this is he will be a little lukewarm throughout the process, and then at the very end, when he sees that it's a big enough deal, then he comes in and participates because he wants to still be a part of it. However, in this case, because... He's working on uh, his own film. He's got his own 10-hour ESPN Netflix documentary coming out next year. I think that had a, a little bit to do with why he didn't end up sitting for an interview with this film and book. But Jordan and his people were actually very helpful on the back end, setting up interviews with other players, helping link us up with other members of those Bulls team and his people. So he, he, was, he supported the project without actually being able to sit for an interview in it. 
Yeah, it's just it's always interesting to the to the outsider uh, fan like me. No, and you mentioned this in the intro that it's not the de facto book on basketball because nothing can be. It's such a wide and vast and expansive topic, but he's conspicuously absent from the cover. And but then again, so are a lot of other players, but he sort of like looms large as does another player I'm going to ask you about in a second, but thanks for addressing that. Can you talk a little bit about MJ's ability to crack Madison Avenue in the early 80s? What was the recipe there? It was, and that I love putting together that part of the books with uh, David Stern and Jordan's former David Jordan's Falk. agent David Falk as well, describing how Jordan, how they turned Jordan into this branding powerhouse, and and Jordan, of course, himself had was the most important ingredient of that with his play, with his look, with his character, with his just aura that nobody really seemed to have before or even after there's to, to me i mean and this is this has to do with our age i think people 10 people 15 that saw years him younger yeah. yeah people 10 15 years younger than us don't have as much trouble allow, allowing the idea of lebron as a greater or somehow more magical or incredible person and player than jordan uh, younger folks uh, can get over that hump for me i still can't jordan is still it and it so prior to jordan first of all the whole sort of athletic industrial complex had not taken off nearly to the way that it is today in any regard, right? They were marketing for tennis players, I read, David Falk mentioned. It used to be like there, the individual basketball athlete couldn't find a, a corporate sponsor. Right, or they could get a, they could sign a quick little deal for socks and a quick little deal for, uh, you know, Converse shoes and a quick little deal for different kinds of sweatpants, Champion, Reebok, whatever. But there was, and so Falk with Nike came up with this idea to turn Jordan into the first basketball player athlete as brand. And for a long time, selling that idea to the advertising executives on Madison Avenue was nearly impossible because they would say, oh, the NBA is too black of a league. We don't know if mainstream America, a.k.a. white America, will be interested in in following one of these black basketball players and buying clothes and shoes and everything named after him. And so Nike was willing to go down, go down that road with Jordan, but to, to hear David Falk describe it, they didn't have great expectations early on. They thought the original contract was written up with all kinds of one-year and two-year options to get at, to break it if it didn't work out at all. Of course, they came up with the Air Jordan. They came up with the Spike Lee, Mars Blackman commercials. It's got to be the shoes and all of this amazing stuff. And Jordan was the perfect person. He was the, probably the greatest player of all time. In my mind, the greatest player of all time. And the most... It's almost impossible to to describe Jordan's aura in short. It was perfection. It was it, it was un, he was unstoppable. He was otherworldly, transcendent. Yes, and uh, and so it all of that that came together in the right person at the right time, and it just worked. And and it just got bigger and bigger and bigger as as his career took off. And he of course won all the champ you know won three championships. Took took two years off for baseball or a year and a half. Came back, won three more. The dream team. All of that just kept adding up and and snowballing into this juggernaut. And it's still going strong. Yeah, it's st- he still outsells pretty much everyone yeah. else. Um, do you see any parallels with what happened to Doug Collins when he coached the Bulls team before their six championships and Mark Jackson when he coached the Warriors before their run? 
Are there any parallels to be made there other than the low-hanging fruit of they both coached right before the teams exploded? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the the, the obvious parallel is that they were both there right before another coach came in and brought those teams to a new level uh, and and won multiple championships with them. And the story with Doug Collins is that he was so intense and such so so maniacally driven to to win that it was when he wore players down and he was one of the the, the you hear about coaches with that kind of intensity practice the, right the, the the Scott Skiles is the Tom Thibodeau is to some degree uh and, and Collins who they can come in and bring a team to a higher level. They'll, they're great teachers. They can get them playing on, this, on, on, you know, they can get every guy, get guys working together and, and get them reaching a higher level as a player, but as a team. But then to get over that final hump, sometimes they get so wound, tightly wound that it backfires and teams eventually tune them out. Now, I don't know how much that really happened with Doug Collins. There was, you know, the, the, the Bulls back then were, were always known as a as an organization with a lot of politics and, and backbiting and, and the, the great, you know, now past uh, GM Jerry Krause, who, who put together those teams, was often at at war vocally with his players, with Michael Jordan and and Scottie Pippen, and saying, telling the media that organizations win championships and players don't. And so there was also a power struggle between Collins and Kraus that may have had something to do with his uh, leaving the team. And so if you look at Mark Jackson, yeah, there there was some similar kind of turmoil between him and ownership, and some players liking him, some players not. I think one of the differences for looking back on it. It's hard to predict exactly how history will look at Mark Jackson as the coach of the Warriors right before Steve Kerr came in and they started winning championships. But with Doug Collins in Chicago, people mostly think that he was a little bit of an innocent bystander, an innocent victim in that situation. That, yeah, Phil was a great coach and turned out to be, Phil Jackson was a great coach and turned out to be probably perfect for that team. Or you can't, you certainly can't argue with the results. So, but but would Doug Collins have gotten there with the same group? Maybe we don't. It's not as definitive. Whereas with Mark Jackson, he had that talent pre Kevin Durant, but in Golden State, he had Steph Curry and Clay Thompson, Draymond Green playing. At, and but he was Draymond wasn't in the it wasn't in the rotation yet. And now Steve Kerr wasn't going to start Draymond either. But David Lee gets hurt early in their season, and then they find this new level by by giving green that opportunity so there's always some coincidence some happenstance involved of course um but i think that overall the style of basketball that the warriors played under mark jackson was a lot more pick and roll and iso heavy and it didn't quite harness the amazing gifts of the shooters on the court in the same way that kerr has now would jackson have found that out eventually and discover unlocked something similar possibly but they didn't do it while he was there and there's this belief that Mark Jackson didn't have them, might not have ever had them playing the optimal style to go ahead and become this team that, if they win big this year, is going to have a very strong case for being the, the greatest NBA team ever. Coming from a Jordan fan. It, I, it's a strong case. It's hard yeah. to, it's oh, hard it, to no, yell. It, yeah. it is for sure. 
No, it's the key to the coach also just kind of unlocking that screw. And and I'm going to ask you a follow-up question to that later, but it'll it'll come full circle. A quick word on uh, Allen Iverson. A chapter was devoted to him. Um, what's his legacy? Well, to the people who remember Iverson, saw him play, he's one of the most unforgettable players in, in NBA history. He, of course, didn't get a title. He got his MVP, but, but ran up against those early 2000 Lakers that were pretty unbeatable during their title run in the, in the playoffs. And Iverson doesn't have the ring. He doesn't have the efficiency numbers. If any, I, I kind of fear that he may be downgraded historically when people just look, go back and look at his numbers, look at how he got his points, look at his style of play. And the default for fans of these days is becoming more along the lines of I'm a GM in my head so I'm looking to maximize optimize everything it wasn't really about that with Allen Iverson it was about his guts his heart the way that how fast he was his his handles the way he could finish he was a guy who's probably 5'10 5'11 even though he's listed at 6'1 and weighed maybe 160 pounds and was going in there and challenging guys at the rim when the league was much rougher than it is today, when you could hand check and manhandle guys all over the court and nobody could stick in front of him. Nobody could stay, had it really any chance, hope of guarding him. You just had to hope that he pulled and took a lot of pull-ups and missed and was off that night. That heart, that will, that determination, the style that, and, and everything that he meant culturally and style wise and clothes and tattoos and, and which was, it's one of those crazy things that now everyone celebrates it as, oh, yeah, what a, what a trailblazer. We love Allen Iverson. But, of course, in, his, in the moment, he was vilified. David Stern created the, the NBA dress code basically to legislate Allen Iverson's outfits out of the game. And now, so we look back on it with, on his nostalgia. impact on the game with nostalgia and these rose-tinted glasses. At the same time, looking back at his achievements on the court, maybe downgrading them, maybe not giving him as much credit as he does. Deserved. I think he will be, he's sort of destined to be misunderstood in so many ways. And and honestly, his career was like that a lot too, right? I mean, going all the way back to high school and, and being charged after the, the brawl in the bowling alley and having to, needing John Thompson to come out of Georgetown and, and, and be the one coach who was willing to stand by him and, and give him that opportunity. A great come to basketball moment for me too was when in his rookie season he crossed up Jordan. It's just a classic shot. You can watch it on repeat over and over again. Probably one of the most rewatchable basketball plays ever. I think. Yeah, and, and it's um, one of those things. And it's funny because he 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 talks about it like it it just happened. Like yeah. he's look the guy got, the guy got switched on me. He picked yeah. me up, and I you know I crossed him over once to see if it see see how he'd bite. I saw what happened. I did it. I did it again, and boom! I I, I created space, pulled up, and drained the shot. And he just says he's just reacting, which I'm sure is true. But at the same time. And of course, you know Michael Jordan got scored on in his career. He, of course, he got you know, yeah. he got dunked on in his career. All of these things, but to see it that happening at that moment in Iverson's rookie year, it's just there are those moments that take on a greater significance. Welcome because to of, the NBA. Yeah, who's involved and and the the emotional side of them. Handful of more questions for you. You've been really gracious with your time, and I appreciate it. Could today's Warriors beat? This is a Pretty controversial question. They probably piss off a lot of people. But could today's Warriors beat the 92 Dream Team? Um, I don't know. Uh, Old rules and new rules. Right. 
I no, I don't think so. If if you are pl- under under either rules, I, obviously the let's assume that regard. So if they're playing under the old rules, they both teams have whatever enough time to adjust to them. Like it feels natural. It's how they would play. If they're playing according to the new newer rules, again, both teams are adjusted enough to to have a, a game that feels on a even playing field between them. The dream team was, except for Christian Leitner, who made an all-star team, was not a bad player, but he's a 12th man. It doesn't really matter. The dream team was the greatest assemblage of talent ever that, that, that basketball has ever seen on one team. If they had full seasons to work together, Michael Jordan and, and Charles Barkley at that point of his career, they were, those were the two MVPs of the NBA. Michael before Charles the next year. And, and of course, Larry and Magic at the ends of their careers. Ewing and 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 David Robinson and Carl Malone and Justin Stockton. It's just too much. There there there's too much depth. Imagine playing in a full NBA season or in a series with that whatever their second unit would have been. I don't think anyone was was going to beat them. It's just under the new rules. Could I imagine there being games where the the shooters on Golden State are just so hot? That, Curry drops 55 and three quarters. Right. They, then they're going to win some of those games. But over the course of a, a series, I'm, I would still choose the Dream Team, even if they're, they're a, a less modern collection of talent. Me too. Let's, let's hope we're right. Well, we'll never get to find out, right? Who's the greatest player that never won a ring, in your estimation? Wow. Off the top of that's that's tough. Is it... it is there like a? I'm trying. To, let me ask you. Is there is there someone that we always throw out there? Is so, it Charles? Um, uh, Charles, Carl Malone, Allen Iverson. Yeah, I'm a Chris Webber guy. I went to school, high oh, school man. in Sacramento. Just you don't have to have one. I just I just I'm always curious. Like there's always we talked. Like I mentioned to you earlier, we talked to Jeff Van Gundy in here, and he was talking about how you're never going to tell me that Carl Malone's not a champion just because he didn't win a championship. He had to play against Michael Jordan, you know, whereas Tim Duncan didn't. So it's just a again. This is just one fan talking to another, right? No, I and I lo- actually really appreciate when when Van Gundy says that he says he says something along those lines in the book as yeah, well. Yeah, um, and it it really is a good point. The idea that these great players who just ran up against a greater player, you 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 ran up like uh, look at the league today. All these teams that are losing to Golden State, is there really any shame in that? Absolutely not. So I think that it's smart to keep in mind just how great those guys were and not hold it against them that they couldn't get over the hump against some of the greatest teams that were ever put together in an NBA, you know, roster. Reggie Miller and Patrick Ewing are two more names that Reggie came to Miller, mind. Reggie Miller, Patrick Ewing. I, you know, I, I mean, the way things are going, James Harden could end up being one of those players. Uh, that would be a travesty. Look, at this point, he's, he's, his window is closing. Russell Westbrook, too. I was saying, that's one. what I was thinking as well. Yeah, Westbrook, Harden are definitely going to be up there. It's rarefied air, though. Even among these names that we just dropped, these are, all, these are all Hall of Famers. These are all all-time players. And as I've become older and wiser, a little bit wiser, I've, I've, I appreciate the fact that not everybody's going to win a championship. You know, I'm as much of a fan of LeBron James as I am, you know, he, he's, this whole, there's this whole notion of he, he's not the best unless he beats Jordan uh, in rings. But, you know, when you see him come back from down 3-1 against the Warriors and to win the series, you'll have a different view of that, you know? And I, I, I don't know about how you feel about Dirk Nowitzki, but when they won against the Heat that first season when they were supposed to get destroyed, and he does that, he's, he's in the paint, and he does that little spin layup to, to, like, ice the game, 
Dirk is that was three championships right there for me. He's got three in my mind uh, with that one. Yeah, so those two championships are some of the most impressive, most you know those performances leading those teams to upsets. The what LeBron did in 2016. Obviously, Kyrie Irving had an amazing series awesome. as well and hit the yeah. shot that basically won the entire thing for yeah. him in Game Seven. But to see LeBron lead that team against the 73-9, and the team that was going to lock up the best-ever tag, all of that was—that really is one of the most impressive things I've ever seen anyone do on a basketball court. That is— that's Jordan level. That 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 is what you that. and you'll and you'll remember where you were at that game seven forever. Yeah, you know that 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 one game. The NBA is global, okay, and the book uh, addresses this uh, quite a bit as well. Is the NBA still a growth sport though, or is it? Are we at peak NBA right now? Mm, I think it's definitely growing, and and it can grow simply be, by becoming such a popular sport in China through Yao Ming and through players efforts to spread the game and their own shoe and personal brands every summer in 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 China and other countries in Asia that ha- that alone has greatly expanded the market and and the international sort of numbers of who cares about NBA basketball but they I, that I still think they're probably only scratching the surface of the kind of audience they could get in China the NBA basketball is really only beginning to take hold in India where there are a billion people and and growing a lot of tall people a much taller population than some other countries where basketball is really popular there there's so much and, and and then the stuff that say Masai Ujiri the GM of the Raptors does with basketball without borders in in Africa and and the, the players that that program has already sent to the NBA whether it's Joel Embiid and Lukumba Mute and Pascal uh, Lukasharumba Mute and Pascal Siakam and and the, you know the various Cameroonian players. So talent wise, there's still so much more. And as the game becomes more popular, more kids grow up playing it, get opportunities to be coached at earlier ages. You got to think that that the international talent, the ability to to find new great players from countries where they've historically never come from is going to happen and really can happen the way the sport is growing. And as that happens, if if there is a great Indian player, a great another great Chinese player after Yao, then that could be the catalyst that brings in all these new generations of of fans from from all over the world. What's the deal with Arvidas Sabonis? Why does he seemingly loom above all other international players even today? What is it about him? What is it what was it about his game? So some of it, I think, is timing and mystique because Sabonis didn't come over to the NBA until the very end of his career when he was 7'4 and probably over 300 pounds and could barely run and jump and still managed to be one of the best centers in the game. Now, he wasn't putting up huge numbers, but he was one of the only guys who could compete with Shaq in those years, one of the only guys who could take over a game with his passing, had this, had still had this breathtaking skill set, the kind of thing you don't ever see in players that big. And the vision, the creativity, it was, it was just remarkable and so much fun. So, that allows us to look at what we did see of Sabonis in the NBA 
and then imagine what he must have been in his athletic prime before he suffered a torn, a ruptured Achilles in the 80s when this was not a an injury that people came back from, before his knees ground down and his hips were tight and all these other things happened to him. They say, Kenny Smith says in the book that he played on a USA team that competed in the 1985, would have been World Games, maybe the college world games. Anyway, it was a team with Kenny Smith and David Robinson on it. And he says that David Robinson could not do a single thing with Arvita Sabonis at the time. That that Sabonis, they, and it's, it's almost impossible to, it's very hard to imagine exactly what it looked like to see a player like this. But Sabonis in his athletic prime, according to a lot of very knowledgeable sources, was 7-4, could run the floor, could bring the ball up the floor, could pass was could pin shots on the glass and then beat the entire team down the other the the other way for a dunk. So he if you you're basically talking about all of the skill we saw late in his career and also being one of the most athletic seven footers anyone had ever seen at that time. So if you put that package together, it's not that hard to understand why that team with all these other great Lithuanian Soviet players in 1988 beats the 1988 Team USA with J.R. Reed and David Robinson and and uh, and Danny Manning and David Wingate and all those guys. Like it's not. It's like it starts to make sense now. Is it all true, or is it some of that? The the mystique is some of that the the legend that it's so apocryphal, right? Like I saw a man you'll never believe what I saw when Sabonis was young in '85 and '86. Some of that embellishment has to come in. It's just human nature. Yeah. But I believe a lot of it, and and so, and pretty much anyone who saw him in those days talks about it like a life changing event, like like the first time they saw they saw Michael Jordan, or the first time, or watching you know, watching Iverson cross over Jordan. It's one, the handful of Americans who encountered young Sabonis talk about it like a, a religious experience. experience. Well said. Yeah, no, it's great branding for him too, man. He's, I kind of see him like the top of a mountaintop, like some kind of a Jedi and this whole world is like talking about him. And then you have the Jordans of the world going, huh? Like what? The Sabonis? But well, it's, it's also, it's, you know what it is? It's, it, it's, it's similar to the NBA draft, right? Where yeah. you see these guys, whether... They are coming over from Europe, or they are guys who shut their, you know, they they shut they 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 leave high school and don't play in college just to keep their their draft stock. It helps to not be seen sometimes because it allows everyone to talk about how great the one thing they saw, the great thing you did that they saw that stuck in their head, that one salient, outstanding play is what people remember. So I'm sure Sabonis benefits from that a little bit, but. So many people say it that it, it, this is not a conspiracy. This is no, not right. like all of the basketball people in the, on the planet who are around in the 1980s getting together and saying, let's secretly make Sabonis a huge deal. I mean, he was uh, that great. No, and we saw it too when he when his Portland Trailblazer team played the Lakers. I think they took him seven games. That was the big alley oop that Kobe threw to Shaq. But uh, look, Shaq dominated the series. Let's not kid ourselves. But Sabonis did create some issues, and that was at an advanced age, like you know, at an advanced basketball age, I should say. Yeah, very, um, very much. I'm going to finish up with the. Uh, I'm going to have you put your betting man's hat on for me. Who finishes with more rings? If you had to bet, LeBron, Kobe, or Durant. And then you know what my follow-up question is going to be, obviously, without I'm excluding Kobe from that. I still say Kobe, probably. Okay. Durant has a better chance. To get five. I think that if Golden State stays together, 
which if they want to keep winning championships, probably they should, uh, then I would favor Durant to overtake Kobe's five and get to maybe six. To tie Jordan. Well, actually, he's only got two, though, yeah. so he'd need four more. Yeah, I'm, I'm just staying with Kobe. It's very hard to keep winning in the NBA. Things happen. Guys get hurt. Guys get old. New guys come along. We're seeing it happen a little bit already. Not so much to the Warriors, who who still look like very prohibited favorites in this year's you know title race. But if you look at Houston... Coming in, Chris Paul looks like age may finally be catching up with him a little bit. They can't find their rhythm this they, season at all. There's some so so windows do close and five rings is a lot. Kobe's got five. I I, I think the smart bet, the smart money is probably just on no none of these guys are gonna get past five. Do you think do you think LeBron picks one up in LA? Is he able to do it in four years? I think we'll have a better idea over the next summer when literally half of the NBA is, is on free agency and the Lakers can basically restock with a whole new team. If they come back with some loaded big three with, with a amazing roster, then yeah, I would say there's a very good chance in the next three years remaining on the contract that LeBron could get a title. If they aren't able to put a good enough team around him, the, the league is just too good to expect LeBron to carry someone, you know, a team that, that is not, truly elite on that very top NBA level to to a championship. So I think we'll have a better idea when we see how they retool. Well, Rafe, I want to thank you for coming in to the studio to talk my favorite topic. Um, the book is Basketball, A Love Story. Great read, a lot of fun, a lot of nostalgia, a lot of context. Congratulations, and hope we could cross paths soon sometime. Same here, thank you. Take care. You've been listening to Book Stories. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Book Stories is an alternate Thursdays production. Special thanks to Savannah Tate for production assistance. I'm Vic Singh. Thanks for listening.